Welcome to Haunting History, the podcast that reaches back into the past for the events that still haunt us today. Tales of true crime, mystery, and the macabre. And when we're lucky, the stories were history and the people who lived it and the paranormal meet. Now who doesn't love a good ghost story, right? Welcome back to Hunting History Podcast. I'm your host, Kat. And I'm Haley. And we have a new Patreon, Andrea Price. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrea. Your stuff will go out in the mail this week. And then before we get started, I wanted to talk. We got a review from someone. And I don't always want to like acknowledge good or I mean, bad reviews. I mean, I acknowledge good ones all the time. But this one said that it was about the Bell Witch episode. And it said, I live down the road from the Bell Witch Cave. I would love to talk to you and correct some of your inaccuracies in your podcast. I mean, apparently, I fuckered up the Bell Witch. Like, there's things that people know that live there. But the problem is, is that they did it as a review and said that they would love to talk to me, but I can't respond on a review. So, if you are still listening, even though I messed up something from your own hometown, KLB from TN, I'm assuming Tennessee, email me at hauntinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear what I got wrong in that episode, especially if you live there and you know things that I can't find in research or reading a book, which I did a lot for that episode. I read a book and did massive research on it and talked to a few people. But if this person, if you have more information, please email me and we can chat. I want to hear what I missed. I mean, more than anything, not that anybody loves to be corrected, but I love, I would love to know more. I would love to hear what they have to say. So KLB from TN, please email me again at huntinghistorypodcast at gmail.com and tell me um, the inaccuracy so that I can fix them. Because at the end of the year, I want to do sort of an update. I get emails on almost every single episode we put out and I get updates for certain things. So at the end of the year, I'd like to do sort of a update on all the different things, especially the Deborah Lynn series, because yeah. we get a lot of stuff for that. Okay, so today's episode is... I mean, everybody knows that I have a fascination with old Hollywood, and this one is a solved mystery, and then many, many years later, it became unsolved because someone came forward. So, um, again, I have a fascination with Hollywood, particularly through the 20s and 40s, and this kind of falls right into that category. It's funny, when people think of The Little Rascals, they think of the 1994 movie by Amblin Entertainment with Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen. Whoopi Goldberg was in it. Yeah, we talked about that, but I had never seen it. Donald Trump was in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is one of your brother's favorite movies. Yeah. Um, Sadly, what most people don't know is that there was already a beloved R gang, as this series was called long before 1994. From 1922 to 1944, Hollywood executive and producer Hal Roach, who was famous for his part in the Laurel and Hardy films and movies by Charlie Chase, he filmed children in what he believed was a relatively natural way. Originally shorts, they were little tiny little snippets of movies. This series converted to talkies in 1927 and entered their most popular era. Scripts were written for the episodes, but most of the kids, they were really young. And I first started researching this. We pulled up one of the episodes and we were watching it in the backyard. The kids were really young. They weren't even old enough to read when they first started filming these. So the director, a man named um, Robert McGowan, would explain the scene to the kids, like what they were going to do right before they filmed it. And then he would direct, and this is so funny, with one of those really big megaphones. And I know you've seen pictures of silent movies being recorded where they're holding a a megaphone and kind of directing, yelling, Mm -hmm. because they're silent. No one can hear them. 
And so he would explain the scene to them and then they would start acting in the scene and then he would like kind of give them directions to this giant megaphone. And then he would encourage the kids to improv- improvise the scene. So they're very natural when you watch them, especially like the, the action scenes. They're, they're just kids playing and they're filming it the whole time. And a note of trivia about the Our Gang series is that both Mickey Rooney and Shirley Temple, the most popular child actors of the time, both auditioned for the Our Gang series and neither one of them made it, which is Why? really weird. I, they just didn't. They weren't picked to be in the series. They were all little, most of the time, unknown children actors. I mean, I'd, now I would rather watch things with people who are unknown. I think it's cool. Is that the, that's probably the reality TV portion of life is that we're all used to watching people that we don't know and getting to know them through that yeah maybe but i know in like the star wars those new star wars movies came out like it was cool and a big deal that the people that they put in that movie kind of weren't in anything before yeah you didn't already have an idea yeah which is is a curse and a blessing like for us it's kind of cool to see someone like grow and change and become a character because they weren't anything before but it, funny that you even bring that up because it's part of the story is that people tend to get typecast. Yeah. The series spanning 220 shorts, a feature film, and a spinoff, our game featured over 41 child actors as regular cast members. Some of the more popular episodes featured their teacher, Mrs. Crabtree. So if you're a fan of the our game, our game series and the Little Rascals, you'll know who Miss Crabtree is. She was played by June Marlowe. And the reason I bring her up is because I actually met her once back in the 80s. She was a patient at the hospital my mom worked at. She was recovering from some kind of surgery. It was a rehab hospital my mom worked at. And so my mom one day goes, hey, you know Mrs. Crabtree from the Arguing series? And I was like, yeah. yeah. And uh, she goes, well, do you want to meet her? She's at my hospital. And I literally almost peed my pants. So I got to go in and sit and talk to her for a long time. Literally, she talked to me for Probably over an hour. Um, she didn't really want to talk that much about the Our Gang series. Um, she wanted to talk a lot about her husband who had passed away. And she had this beautiful picture I'll never forget. It was like a Hollywood still photo of her and her husband. And I'm, I mean, I was a, a geek about old Hollywood even when I was 13. I mean, it's not something new that I came across. I've always been this way. So I just kind of geeked out the whole time. And she was really sweet. And the one thing that she did tell me, though, was that Jackie Cooper, if you're if you're an old Hollywood buff like me, you know who Jackie Cooper is. She mentioned that he was a very sweet kid and all that the kids worked really hard on that series. And it's funny because like during the whole Our Gang series, the episodes with Miss Crabtree were one of some of the most popular episodes. So it's kind of exciting to meet her. The premise that Al Roach used when filming the kids was he used real life situations and he had the kids playing most of the kids played poor kids. And they were often pit against the quote-unquote rich kids in the neighborhood and uh, the adults in their lives. The actors became household names, and more often than not, when they aged out, in a ho- as Hollywood says, they aged out, it, they were typecast, like we were just talking about, and unable to find other roles, particularly the, the, the premier kids in this series. And that's exactly what happened to Carl Dean Schweitzer. He played one of the most iconic and popular characters in the air. Our Gang series. Born five years after the series started in 1927, Carl Dean and his brother Harold were kind of known throughout their town as being talented. Like, I don't know that they were super talented, but they were very artsy and performy. Like, they performed a lot. And in 1934, the Schweitzer family traveled from their hometown in Illinois 
to California for vacation. And I, I'm pretty sure, like they say, this, the, the studio story is that they were just on vacation. It just, this just happened. But the mom was sort of a stage mom and they happened to be visiting the Hal State, Hal Roach studios. And back then, the studio cafeteria that tourists could go into was the same cafeteria that all the performers that worked at the studios used. And Carl and his older brother were in the studio cafeteria and the two boys got up at a table and broke into a song and dance skit. And it just so happened that Hal Roach was there at the same time. Like this was all very planned. I'm sure the studio put out a story that it wasn't planned at all, that they just kind of broke into song and dance and Hal Roach saw them and pointed at them as like, I want them in my show movies. And and that's exactly what happened. It's sort of like the old Hollywood magazines where people would get discovered doing normal things. And so the Hal Roach really did see them, really did like them. He was impressed. And he wanted them in the Our Gang series. He named Harold, the older brother, Deadpan, because they all had nicknames in the show. And Carl was Alfalfa. So if you're confused at all about who Carl Dean Schweitzer is, you will know him by his show, by his name in the show was Alfalfa. Because even when I said to you, Carl Dean Schweitzer, that that was the story this week, you were like, who? Yeah. But I said Alfalfa. Yeah. And then you knew who I was talking about. Yeah, yeah. Their first movie was Beginner's Luck in 1935. Alfalfa's trademark, but high cowlick and off-key singing of mostly Bing Crosby songs cemented his character's popularity and soon his star and attention on the screen zoomed past the then reigning child king of the Argang set, who was at the time George Spanky McFarland. Carl was considered a huge, huge, huge pain in the ass on the Argang set. He he wasn't parented from what I understand. Like his parents did not really correct bad behavior partially because he was, you know, the moneymaker of the family. And he played pranks on all the other actors and crew members. Like, in the show, he was very beloved. Like, everybody loved Alfalfa the way that he sang, the way that he was always in love with Darla, and all the cute little things he did. But behind the scenes, he was just a total tyrant. Um, it was rumored that his on-screen girlfriend, Darla, was actually physically afraid of him. And one of his most well-known stunts was that he would pee on the lights, which would cause the lights to, first of all, smell really bad. They were super hot. They're not the lights. The, I mean, even today, the lights on the set are very, very hot. Back then, they were like burning flames, and he would pee on them. So it would cause this like horrible smell. And then one time, he purposely peed on them a lot and blew them up. Like they blew up the set. And so everybody, first of all, it scared the crap out of everybody. And then secondly, they had to shut down the set for the day. So as you can imagine, the people who worked on the set were not happy because they didn't work. They didn't get paid. Yeah. So here's this little kid running around causing... Being a little douchebag. Yeah, just one time he put fish hooks in Spanky's pants, and George McFarlane's pants, and when he sat down, it cut him so bad he actually had to have stitches in his bum. And he got away with all this stuff. Well, yeah, he I was mean, important, quote-unquote. Right. And then Darla had a told, used to tell a story that one time he told her he had a gift for her in his pocket, and that he she had to reach into his pocket and grab it, he had an open like pen knife in a, in her pocket in his pocket. He's like awful. One cameraman is known. This is a story that's been passed around many, 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 many years. One cameraman um, was known to have called Carl over to him one day and told him that when you're 21, I want you to come find me. And Carl said, "Well, why?" And the cameraman is reported to have said. 
because when you will be that age, when you will be of that age, I can beat the shit out of you. Probably deserves it. He probably, well, and again, like there was no unions. I mean, there wasn't anything to protect these workers. They didn't have sick time or anything back then. So if they had to go home because of something this little kid did, they lost pay for the day. Yeah. So they weren't happy with him. George, again, who, George McFarlane, who played Spinky, he, I've watched a ton of interviews with him and he really didn't say a lot of nice things about Carl. Like, I don't think that time put enough distance behind him that he forgave him for any of this shit. Um, but he did say that the pint-sized prankster had a lot on his plate. By the age of 10, he was supporting both his parents and his siblings. His job was the only job the family had, so no doubt the parents didn't do a lot of disciplining of their little cash cow. So he kind of got away with everything. And apparently his father, and just a little trivia, I guess, apparently his father and Spanky's dad got in a lot of fights on the set. Um, mostly over who had the most lines and who was the most popular in the series. And Spanky was really popular too, but I really feel like Alfalfa is the one who stood the test of time. You know? Yeah. Everybody knows who he is. Carl left the studio and the series in 1940, and because his character was so distinctive and so iconic, he struggled almost immediately when he left the safety of the R-Gang set. Finding roles wasn't easy, in 1955, the arguing films were turned into a hugely popular TV series called The Little Rascals, which is what the movie was named after. However, Schweitzer or any of the major characters, including George McFarlane, William Thomas, who played Buckwheat, or Darla Hood, never received any royalties from the show. Like, that would never happen now. Yeah. And they spent their childhood doing this and never got paid again for it, which is really unfortunate as an adult, he mostly took roles playing parts in B-movies, like little bit parts. And another bit of trivia, if you're familiar with the movie White Christmas, which I know I've made you watch, mm-hmm. when Vera Ellen shows a picture to Bing Crosby, she like shows him a photograph, and they, they, the camera's pans to the photograph. It's actually a picture of Alfalfa. And he recognized him right away. And then if, if you don't know this movie, I mean, I know you do, because I've made you watch it a million times, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Mm-hmm. But I'll die if other people have not watched It's a Wonderful Life. In the school dance scene, the high school dance scene, Mary's Date is played by Alpha, by Carl Schweitzer. It's the only two movies I I know of that he was recognizable. But he, again, teeny tiny parts. Yeah. He was one of the most popular characters in movies. And then... Nothing. Yeah, couldn't find anything. He had a lot of, it was known that he had a drinking problem and had numerous run-ins with the law. Um, one in, one that he, he was actually arrested for cutting down 15 protected pine trees in the Sequoia National Forest. Why? Oh, he was going to sell them for Christmas trees. It was a great way to make money, I guess. Carl was a textbook child star of the era and married for a short time. He made money at odd jobs like bartending and dog training and being a hunting guide. And the funny thing is, is I read that a lot of the really popular stars um, of Hollywood, like Jimmy Stewart, my favorite, and Henry Fonda, would hire Carl to be their hunting guide when they would go hunting. So he had like a little side business. It just, you know, it wasn't very much. It wasn't like being a star of a movie. No, like, can you imagine being like as popular as he was and then having to bartend to make ends meet? He, he didn't do well. In 1959, he agreed to train a hunting dog for Moses Samuel Stilts. Well, training the dog, no, there's some confusion. Some say that Moses hired him to train his dog and he took him hunting and lost him. 
in other stories, it says that he borrowed the dog from Moses and took the dog hunting. But either way, the dog chased after a bear and was lost. So Carl offered a reward of $35 for the return of the dog because he had the dog, whether he was training it or borrowed it or whatever, he Mm -hmm. had the dog. His responsibility. Yeah. That comes into play later. It's weird that you say that. He offered a reward of $35. A few days later, a man showed up at the bar where Carl was working and he had the dog. He had found the dog. So Carl gave him $35 cash for the agreed upon reward and then bought him $15 worth of drinks at the bar that he was working at to thank him for not only returning the dog, but like delivering it to him. Several days later, on January 21st, 1959, Carl, while drinking with his friend Jack Pyatt, decided that he shouldn't have been the one to have to pay the reward money. He kind of, they decided while they were drinking, like people do, that he he shouldn't be responsible that Moses should have had to pay that $50 because it was Moses' dog. So they decided in their little drunken stupor to go confront Moses and tell him that he owed them, he owed him the $50 that he had paid out to the for the reward. And this is where things get a little sh- shady because there were originally only three witnesses and one of them didn't survive this. But according to Stilts, now this is the the man who owned the dog. He says that the two men banged on his door screaming to be let in. After someone in the house opened the door, they forced their way in past, in some stories it was his wife who answered the door. They shoved past her, said that that they wanted to collect their money, basically. They were being aggressive and loud. And I guess that they were. Now this is the, it's confusing again because the story is coming from Moses. And he said that they kind of aggressively entered the house, said that they were, they were there to collect their money. And then um, his wife and his stepchildren ran to the neighbors to call the police. So if they did that, which I believe that they did, it must have been aggressive enough for them to feel like they needed to call the police, right? That they were unsafe. That they were unsafe. So the two men insisted that, that Stilts pay Swites for the $50 that he gave the man for returning the dog, claiming that he was the one that was responsible for the dog. The two men, Carl and Moses, got into a heated argument. At one point in the argument, Stilts claims that Carl pulled out a hunting knife, which have you ever seen a hunting knife? They're huge. They're not little tiny knives. They're big knives. And that he ran to his room and pulled out a thirty-eight and went back to defend himself from the hunting knife. Carl tried to wrestle the gun away, tried to like get the gun from him. The gun went off and shot the ceiling. So as Carl was trying to wrestle the gun away, his friend Jack jumped in and hit stilts over the head with a glass domed clock, which caused a cut on Moses's face where the blood was running into his eyes. He says that's when he ran and got his gun. Jack says he went and got the gun and then he hit him with the glass dome clock. Either way, after this, like they scuffled for the gun and the gun shot into the ceiling. Then something happened with the glass dome and then he shot again. And this time Dilt says that he claims that Carl pulled the knife again. And then when he stepped back, he pointed the gun and shot it. This time he hit Carl in the groin area. At the time, Stoltz said law enforcement um, just began to arrive. Like the site right after he shot, he heard the sirens. Carl was declared deceased upon arrival at the hospital the gunshot had caused massive internal bleeding. The coroner's jury ruled that Stilts was acting in self-defense because of all the confusion with the knife and the gun and the glass-domed clock. His whole defense was predicated on the fact that he felt he was being threatened by the knife, right? 
that it was self-defense. And that's what the jury ruled on, that it was self-defense. The police actually had found a knife, but it was a pen knife. It wasn't a hunting knife. And it was under Carl's body. So it wasn't something he was holding in front of him. Does that make sense? Yeah. It When it was found, it wasn't even open. It was kind of like it had fallen out of his pocket. And then it, it seemed like it was a done deal. The case was closed. Stilts went about his life. And then 40 years later, in 2001, a surprise witness came forward and gave a completely different version. Tom Corrigan, who was actually the son of a Western star named Ray Corrigan, was the stepson of Moses Stilts. And he was there the night that Carl was killed. And he claimed to the police, went to the police, and said it was more like murder. He said that he heard the knock on the door and that Switzer said loudly, Western Union for Bud Stilts, not the aggressive story that Moses had told. Um, his mother opened the door. Her name was Rita Corgan. His mother opened the door to find the drunk Schweitzer complaining about the debt. He believed that was owed to him and told her he was there to collect. He went on to say that Schweitzer entered the house, followed by Jack Pyatt, and told her that he was there to beat Stilts and collect the money. And that's why she ran and called the police, because he told her he was there to beat him. Mm -hmm. He said that Schweitzer grabbed the revolver that Stilts had gotten out of his room, which... In his version, they knocked on the door, op she opened the door, and he heard them in the doorway drunk, and he went and got the gun right away, before the knife was even an issue. Mm -hmm. And that he said that when Pyatt broke the glass dome clock over his head, it caused his eye to swell shut, and during the struggle, he had shot the one shot that went through the ceiling, and the second one, he... He couldn't see, and that's why he actually shot Carl. So the story's very convoluted. Yeah, but if you have a gun... He went and got the gun. Yeah, that's why the object the, to use it. The stepson was saying that it was more like murder. He said that, that he and his sisters had ran to the neighbor's house to call the police, and when he came back, that's when the shot went off, and that Carl actually said, because when the shot was fired in the ceiling, the first shot, a fragment hit this little boy in the leg, and Carl himself said, okay, that's enough. We just shot Tommy. That's enough. Let's get out of here. And he was actually going to leave when Stilts shot him in the leg, shot him and killed him, basically. And so this is like craziness. So you would think that the police would reopen the, the case. Corrigan added to this story that when he turned around, he saw Schweitzer sliding down the wall and that the closed pen knife fell out of his hand that it wasn't even open that he never used it to threaten anybody he said that the sirens that were coming is what stopped stilts from killing Pyot. that he had pointed the gun directly at him and was going to kill him too and that if the sirens hadn't started he would have also killed him so claiming. why did it take him 40 years to, to come say forward I, there's no explanation for that corrigan said that his stepfather lied in his account of the event before the jur the coroner's jury. Tom Corgan said he told the police that he would testify against his stepfather when he was a kid and that they never called him to testify. He claims that Carl didn't have to die, that his stepfather murdered him and would have done the same to Jack if the police hadn't arrived. His claims didn't change anything. The police didn't reopen the case and Moses Stilts died at the age of 62 in 1983. I mean, this guy didn't come forward until 2001. So I don't see what the point was. Carl is buried at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery and on his tombstone is the name and picture of a dog. And everybody assumes, if you know from the Arguing series, the dog with the circle on his eyes, like the target dog. Mm -hmm. um, everybody assumes that the dog is Petey the dog on his tombstone. It's not. It's one of his hunting dogs that he owned. 
Um, he wasn't exactly proud of his association with alfalfa. So, like, it would not have been something he would have put on his tombstone. Yeah. But if you take a, a tour of Hollywood or any of the Hollywood memorial, I think there's only one. At the cemetery, they'll say that it's Petey the Dog from the Arguing series. And most people just kind of assume, but it's really not. It's one of his hunting dogs. Again, he wasn't, he wasn't really proud of his association with alfalfa. He used it when he needed to use it to get attention or free stuff or anything like that. But he was he was very aware that the typecasting from that movie and his difficult reputation made it impossible with his future endeavors in Hollywood, you know? Carl wasn't the only one with bad luck. After the Arguing series ended, Darla Hood contracted hepatitis in the hospital and died at age 47. Billy Buckley is one of my favorite characters. Died of a heart attack at age 49. And Robert Blake was tried and acquitted of his wife's murder. So Tommy Bond and his wife were severely, severely injured in a car crash in 1996. And the first Pete the dog was actually fatally poisoned. That's sad. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, it's not exactly uh, a curse, but it had, there was a lot of bad things that happened after that. Carl Dean Schweitzer's death happened to coincide with the death of Cecil B. DeMille, whose death monopolized the news of the time. The child star who brought so much joy with his off-key singing, bug eyes, and straight-up-in-the-air cowlick received barely a mention. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haunting History Podcast. We love hearing from you, so be sure to follow and comment on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to all your favorites. Visit our website at hauntinghistorypodcast.com for more information on each episode and links to our Patreon page and all our social media platforms. Until next time, I'm Kat. I'm Haley. And remember, the living are far scarier than any ghost.